The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. Discover the power within. Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. It's time for a different take on spirituality for the modern world. Welcome to Big Universe with Jim Lefter and Reverend Raymond Anderson. Hi, everybody, and welcome to Big Universe on Unity Online Radio. I'm Jim Lefter, kind of a spiritual journeyman and media producer type guy. I run a website called youthrivehere.com. I'm here with our very own Dark Knight, or should I say Light Knight, or should I say Nightlight? <laughs> The Reverend Dr. Raymond Anderson, the Senior Minister for the Center for Spiritual Living in Greater Baltimore. Actually, I think you might be the Riddler because you pose so many questions all the time that challenge people. Yes, riddle me this, Jim. <laughs> what did the impatient cow say when the person knocked on the door? What? No! Oh. <laughs> you know what I have to say that? Say to that? What's up? I'm Batman. <laughs> Hi, I am Batman. <laughs> you see, I've listened to our episode on Law of Attraction with uh, Victoria Gallagher again. Uh-huh. I'm now independently wealthy, and I fund my own vigilante justice. Amen. I hear you. <laughs> How's it going today for you? It's going. Uh, you know, life's interesting. Um, yes, that it is. The ups and downs of the of the world. How about yourself? Doing okay. You know, same thing. Practicing the practice and keeping the boat afloat. I guess it is important to practice this, huh? Yeah, I, you know, I read a couple of books and, you know, they sort of emphasize the whole thing about practicing. You know, <laughs> Gotta wax on, wax off. Yeah, you know, I read so many books and I'm guilty of, you know, reading the information and not always doing the, the exercises. And I need, to, I need to alter that because the point is, if you're going to invest in this philosophy and this thought, you have, to, you have to walk it. Yeah, this is true. This is true. That's the most difficult part of it. Now, you had mentioned that you were watching a show called Messiah. And yes. I, wanted, I wanted to hear about that a little bit. I haven't seen it yet. Is that on Netflix or Amazon? Yes, it's on Netflix. And it's only season one thus far. And, What's it um, about? I don't even know what it's about, really. Okay, so without giving any spoilers, the gist of it is a gentleman shows up from the Middle East who is demonstrating, well, first of all, he's speaking in a way that is talking about liberation. And he presents sort of as a Messiah character, like the, the second coming of Christ or something. So the Muslims are looking at him like, is he the prophet returned? And Christians are looking at him as, is it Jesus returned? So there's this question. And 
the reason that I like it is because regardless of the spiritual, religious, political statements that are being made, which are excellent, by the way, it causes me to, or invites me to ask, what do I believe? Because he's sort of, like, he doesn't say that directly, but that's sort of what he implies is, what do you believe? Why do you believe it? And do you realize that your beliefs are what's shaping your life? And it's like, ooh. And so you see different peripheral characters around him. Like there's one uh, CIA agent who believes he's a terrorist in the making. So mm. you see how her beliefs about that shape everything in terms of how she responds to him. It's, it's extremely intriguing. Wow. I'm going to have to catch that. I'm going to have then, to catch that. Of course, it makes you wonder, is he? Right. Because like, they leave you just enough to make you question, like, wait a minute, is he really, quote unquote, the Messiah? Hmm. So, yeah, fascinating. I'll have to check that out. Thank you for that. I want to I look into that. Cool. Keep me posted. All right. Are you ready for our dueling inspirational quotes? My yes, I am, sir. My inspirational quote is better than yours. Mm, I, okay, we'll see. We'll see. So here we go. Um, you will also come to understand what Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. meant when he described some people as being thermometers and others being thermostats, which is to say that there are those who give a reading as to what's going on while others set the temperature, raise the volume and live out loud in such a way that your character informs your expressions in the world. Take your cues from the internal guidance of your spirit, not from the external values of a world gone mad. Wow, is that important right now? Right? Uh, Reverend Dr. Michael Beckwith from his book, Spiritual Liberation. Oh, very good. Yeah. Well, mine is... The true church is not made of creeds and forms, nor is it contained in walls of wood and stone. The heart of man is its temple, and the spirit of truth is the one guide into all truth. Sounds sort of like something Richard Rohr would say. Charles Fillmore. Oh, there you go. There you go. You know, I, I, we're going to be heavy on science of mind and Ernest Holmes in this episode, and I, I really wanted to, you know, give something from Unity's Charles Fillmore, because yes. I think... His, he's such an important figure, obviously, in oh, this whole sure. movement, and it really spoke to me. For sure. And I think that's also very timely today as well. Definitely. Cool. Well, you know, Raymond, I feel kind of called right now to share a prayer that uh, I found in Jesse Jennings' book um, that, uh, you know, this is by Ernest Holmes, and I, I was hoping you would indulge me in this. Of course, of course. And he calls this uh, my prayer for my country. I know that divine intelligence governs the destiny of the United States of America, directing the thought and the activity of all who guide its affairs. I know that success, prosperity, and happiness are the gifts of freedom and the divine heritage of everyone in this country, that they are now operating in the affairs of every individual in this country. I know that divine guidance enlightens the collective mind of the people of this country, causing it to know that economic security may come to all without the loss of either personal freedom or individual self-expression. I know that no one can believe or be led to believe that personal freedom must be surrendered in order to ensure economic security for all. 
the all-knowing mind, contains the answer to every problem which confronts this country. I know that every leader in this country is now directed by this all-knowing mind and has the knowledge of a complete solution to every problem. Each is impelled to act upon this knowledge to the end that abundance, security, and peace shall come to all. And I know that this spiritual democracy shall endure, guaranteeing to everyone in this country personal liberty, happiness, and self-expression. Amen. And, and I would even add the prayer extends beyond to every leader of every country across the entire planet. So that we are like, sort of like Star Wars, Star Trek, that we are a, a collective planet of leadership and leaders and people feeding one another, supporting one another and caring for one another. Absolutely. I certainly don't imagine that uh, Ernest Holmes would have any difficulty with that. Um, I think this may have been during World War II yeah. or, or the start of World War II yeah. when, he, when he gave that. And um, I don't know, today with the political climate and everything that's going on, I, I really felt the need to reaffirm that. Amen. Amen. All right. Shall we proceed into the rest of our episode? Yes, sir. Got some questions for uh, Reverend Jesse. Well, Reverend Jesse is the question and answer guy. We will get those answers. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> Hello. Hello. My name is Melissa. And my name is Z. And we're talking today about questions and answers. Yeah. Mm -hmm. One of the things about the brain that's mm -hmm. so cool is that it will just come up with answers to whatever you ask it. This is a really big thing that most people don't even think about. I didn't until somebody pointed it out to me. The thing is that we typically ask questions that we want our, our brain is going to automatically answer that are not very empowering <laughs> questions. Like, yeah. what's wrong with me that I just can't blah de blah de blah Right. Not a great, How come yeah. they get to have that and I don't? We ask mm. these questions that are going to get answers, and they're not going to get answers that we really want to know. They're not empowering questions. They're not empowering questions. Right. So it's really great to consciously manage your thinking. Of course, that's always good with anything. Yes. But ask yourself empowering questions. Ah. Like, what is it that I need to learn in order to? Or how might I... La, 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 la. Mm -hmm. Or how might I open to receive la, 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 mm -hmm. whatever that may be. I love to pose empowering questions to the, to the universe, to spirit, mm. to the big universe. Mm -hmm. I just mm. love doing that when I'm, when I'm confused about something or even when I'm not, when I've got a new project and I'm, I'm wanting guidance about what direction to go. I, I really like to just say, hey, spirit, what about this? right and then just wait for the answer mm. now the trick <laughs> if you were about this is being willing to wait for the answer back in the 90s i uh, got a degree in spiritual psychology in the san francisco bay area and one of my first classes one of my first teachers said something about how in the united states we don't like sitting in i don't know mm -hmm. we don't like that we're supposed to know all the time. <laughs> she loved going to India because she felt like the minute she stepped off the plane, she could feel this willingness to just be in mm. the mystery. 
Now, I think spiritual practice in general invites us to simply be in the mystery. And that's one of the reasons I love this practice so much about asking spirit a question and then simply waiting mm. in the I don't know. Mm-hmm. And sometimes rich. sometimes the answer comes right away. Sometimes it takes a long time. Sometimes it unrolls over a long period of time, all kinds of different answers to my questions. But it's, it's, it's one of my favorite practices. That's beautiful. Yeah. Well, thank you. <laughs> I wanted to say one of the things about that sitting in the I don't know. As opposed to I know. That's so egoic, right? I know. I know. Yeah. Yes. The whole need to know thing. It's one of the things that gets in our way learning new things. Ah, like yes. I've seen it as a vocal coach with people, adults who come in who are like, oh, I'm such an idiot. I did that wrong. It's like, why are you an idiot? When you had no, why would you know that before anybody told you? No one has ever told you how to breathe when you're singing. Why would you know if no one's told you? It's not something that's like organic, natural thing like that. Yeah. One of the times too that I like to ask those questions of the universe or my my body or my mind is especially rich and sweet is right before going to sleep. Mm. Bring me information, reveal information, clarity, movement, whatever's needed from me next, whatever it is, while I'm sleeping. And inevitably, I'll have some often bizarre dream that will be a, like a finger pointing directly to the answer. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. yeah, yeah. It's also great to do questions with your non-dominant hand. Yes. So if you're, I'm left-handed, in my case, it would be writing with my right-handed and asking a question. And this can be used to access a lot of different aspects of ourselves. You yes. can ask a question of spirit or your inner child or your body. Yeah, some hurting part of your body. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And also you can just converse with your inner child, whether writing or not, in mm-hmm. meditation. Mm-hmm. All these are empowering way to ask questions. Questions and, and answers. And get the kind of answers you might want. Yes. Yeah. So we're Melissa and Z to find out more about us and our work. Which is videos. Music. Classes. And more. Go to ohmygodlife.com. Yay. Bye. Hello, it is Edward Biagioti, a.k.a. Crazy Eddie, your undercover inclusion specialist. And uh, today I have the pleasure of talking about dealing with life's questions and answers. And the first thing that popped into my head when I thought of dealing with life's questions and answers is receptivity. That is being open to learn something new, open to receive something new. I think the when I'm faced with questions, especially big ones or things that seem big, like with my work in the school district, we're doing a lot with inclusion, uh, which is including all types of learners into the learning environment. And there's a lot of changes going on and there's a lot of unknowns. And when I'm faced with something that seems really large, it, the temptation is to try to look at what I already know and try to put together something that gives me like a quick answer to the whole thing. What I find is, in a way, while it's good to reflect on what I already know, there are a lot of limitations to approaching things that way. And that's where meditation comes in. Taking time to relax. Sometimes I do what I call bowing to the mountain. When the mountain seems huge, rather than try to 
overcome it or overtake it or just start running full speed or running away in the other direction. Just bow and, and admit this whole thing is way larger than me or at least the way I'm feeling in this moment. And then just drop into ah, a nice time of meditation, relaxation, breathing, appreciating how good my life is right now, realizing that I don't have to tackle the mountain and climb that mountain in order for me to be okay. That in fact, the first step is to be okay now. And then to get into a nice reflective state where new and inspired ideas start to occur to me. And uh, I was just reading in Prosperity Now by Mary Catherine McDougall. She says, the open hand is a giving hand. The open hand is a receiving hand. The closed hand is a refusing and often a grasping hand. Until our hands are open, we cannot give, neither can we receive. Until our hands open easily, we cannot share with others. The outstretched open hand indicates a readiness to receive as well as to give. When we look at our hands, we should bless them as open, receptive givers. And I like that a lot because I think the temptation for me when I get scared or feel overwhelmed by something is to sort of contract and feel like I don't have anything to give until I figure all this stuff out. And I become someone who's not that easy to be around if I'm closed off and I'm thinking really hard about something. So these spiritual practices like meditation and appreciation keep me open even during the time when I don't yet have clarity on something. I'm allowed to, I'm allowed to still live a joyous life just because I haven't figured something out. It's about remaining in a state of wonder regardless of if I have an answer to something or even if the answer that seems to come forward in the beginning isn't what I want to hear. It's it's about practicing saying, "Hmm, I'm going to stay open and wonder what other good idea, what other new idea is going to come forward. I read a book about creativity called uh, Whack to the Side of the Head, where the author suggested, you know, figure out the first couple answers, but don't stop there. Keep going until you find, figure out many answers to every question, because that's when you start really getting creative and see things in a new way. Because the real answer to every question is always more love more goodness, more kindness, more adventures. We live in a universe that is an expression of the divine mind, which is constantly expressing love and goodness, which we are an expression of, which we are created in the image and likeness of. So it's our natural state to be generous and kind. We don't have to have it all figured out is what I'm saying. So once again, my name is Ed Biagiotti, a.k.a. Crazy Eddie. At Crazy Eddie Loves You on Instagram. That's Crazy E-D-D-Y Loves You on Instagram. Also, you can find Funniest Thing with Daryl and Ed in the archives of Unity Online Radio, which is a podcast I did for five years. Or go to DarylandEd.com and it's all there for you. Have a great day and enjoy the adventure. Well, this is really cool today. Our guest today is Reverend Jesse Jennings. Reverend Jesse is the Senior Minister for the Creative Life Spiritual Center in Houston, Texas. He served extensively in organizational leadership, chairing conferences and conventions for the New Thought community, and he served on various boards and committees, including the then UCRS Board of Trustees, which he chaired for two terms in the 1990s. Among his books is one of my favorites, The Essential Ernest Holmes, uh, released in 2002. He also authored the Introduction and Author's Biography for the 2010 Complete Edition 
of Holmes's The Science of Mind textbook, upon which the Centers for Spiritual Living based their teachings. And uh, he's now serving as a contributing editor for Science of Mind magazine, in which his questions and answers, the Way It Works column, has run monthly since 1991, and for which he also regularly produces feature articles. In 1997, he had conferred upon him the honorary degree of Doctor of Divinity, and in 2019, he received CSL's highest honor, the Ernest Holmes Award. Welcome to Big Universe, Jesse. Thank you so much, Jim. Thanks for having me. Really, one of my favorite books on Ernest Holmes is your essential Ernest Holmes. There's so much information in it, um, and it really gives a real glimpse, uh, kind of an overview, but a detailed overview of uh, Ernest Holmes' teachings. Yeah. Um, I, I wondered, why did you write that book? One night, I was sitting at the computer late, and they had, at that time, a minister's listserv, the first, the first iteration of the minister's list serve and it had to be two o'clock in the morning and a request came from reverend edward villune who at the time was head of the publishing committee at united church of religious science and he said we're looking we have a three book deal with uh tarcher i think it was tarcher putnam at the time or jp tarcher and uh and one of the books we want to bring out is uh, is the distillation of Holmes's work in about eighty thousand words? If anybody's interested in working on this, let me know. And because it was two o'clock in the morning, I get this thing. I replied immediately. Maybe I was the first one. <laughs> so that that may be how this happened. I I don't know who else may have uh, you know put their oar in the water, but but uh, I got the gig, and uh, this was in. Um, I want to say it was May of 2000, and I had eight months, I believe, to finish it. Wow. Uh, so I, I got busy and um, and pulled together. I, I owned at the time everything Holmes had published, and I had access to years and years of Science Mind magazine where he had run original articles every month for a very long time. And and uh, well, really, since the, the first issue, he had, I think, in every issue something. And so I, I started pulling all of this stuff together. And the, the challenge was not so much the time frame as the 80,000 words, because the man published, I want to say, somewhere around two and a half million to three million words. Oh, my God. Yeah, because I mean, it just I haven't counted them. But if you just, you know, work on, on spine width and, and stuff on a bookshelf you kind of guesstimated out at that. And um, I had my favorite passages. I had the stuff that I had been quoting for years. Mm -hmm. um, but then I started, I, I thought, well, let's go through some more obscure material. And, and that was really where the joy of it came. One of the big surprises to me uh, was how, and this is very um, hard to define or, or validate, but it seemed to me like something was guiding me to material that I had overlooked, if I'd ever even read it, that made its way into the book. That it, it struck me as though it was stuff he thought now from the beyond was important for people to have and to know. 
And so stuff almost literally fell off the shelf and opened to a passage. Yeah, the voice celestial was what I led off each of the chapters with. Uh, the epic poem that Ernest and, and Fenwick wrote mm-hmm. together, his last published work, and um, pieces of that that I had not encountered, at least, and they hadn't registered with me. They hadn't made the impact on me that they did at that time. Uh, so it was it was just a marvelous experience for me to to reacquaint myself with all of this and and put it into some kind of coherent whole. Well, you certainly did an amazing job with it. I mean, there's so much in the breadth of it, uh, you know, uh, going from the basic teachings to where he kind of expanded to as, uh, you know, as his life went on and as his uh, studies went on. Mm-hmm. Yes. He, his teaching evolved quite a bit. One of the things about all of the New Thought teachers, when they start writing, they're young. Right. They're relatively young. They're in their 30s or 40s when they when they first get published, first get noticed. And you have a perspective on life when you're in your 30s and 40s. It changes a great deal over time. And over the course of his entire writing career, he he watched the world change. He developed relationships with a number of people that went on to become great teachers themselves. And, uh, and you know, so now they're teaching him and he had wonderful conversations around difficult issues like are we a christian teaching what is the nature of good and evil uh, is there is there a hope for humankind as he watched the world wars happen and he he grew and he mellowed but he never he never really deviated from the original position that he'd taken of god being all there is and the universe being the manifest body of God. One of the questions I want to get into is, um, and we only have about a minute before we have to take a break, so you'll answer it quickly or we'll come back for it. Um, <laughs> what was the most surprising thing you discovered about Holmes when you when you were writing the book? Is there something that sort of stands out to you? I would say his humility. Um, in, his, in his written work, he is lionized in our centers, but during his lifetime, he was the most humble, unassuming individual who at the same time had this personal charisma. He had very little formal education, but once they're established in LA, he walked into USC and UCLA and he sat down with their scholars and he got them on committees and boards to uh, help inform the, the teaching of the, of the Institute. Uh, and so he had, he had this, this great personal drive and and curiosity for all manner of things but uh but he never he never let it go to his head it seems uh, he he never he never wanted statues put up and and his name to be in light uh which which makes us very humble we who study him and and, uh, and you know, offer his teaching to the world now uh, that it's not about personality but it's really about spiritual principles Awesome. We'll be right back on Big Universe with Unity Online Radio, talking with Reverend Jesse Jennings. Thanks for joining us. This is Unity Online Radio. 
the voice of an awakening world. Welcome back to a slightly off-kilter look at spirituality. This is Big Universe with Jim Lefter and Reverend Raymond Anderson. Welcome back to Big Universe on Unity Online Radio. We're with Reverend Jesse Jennings, author of The Essential Ernest Holmes. So I got a question for you, Jesse. You know how Holmes says, you know, that we're supposed to be open at the top, stay open at the top. What does that mean for you? To me, it means to continue to have a direct, unmediated experience of the divine. That means other people's opinions are interesting. Other teachers' directions are useful. But if I want to know who I really am and what my life is really to be about, I have to maintain a daily spiritual practice of direct connection. Mm -hmm. And when Holmes said the organization should be that way, Mm-hmm. This is what I believe he meant, is that all of us, we get together and we imagine what we ought to do going forward, but all of us, each of us, need to maintain our daily spiritual practice, our regular spiritual practice, to to receive intuitive awareness of the highest and best. There was a teacher named Kennedy Schultz, who very famously put out a document 25 years ago or so where he said, being open at the top is not the same as being open at the sides. <laughs> but, <laughs> by which I think he meant, you know, the, the changing opinion of the world and so on. It's, it's interesting. It's good information. But you got to go to your source. You know, especially with the, the condition of what's going on in the world and the United States today and homes being around, you know, World War II, would... Was Holmes considered a pacifist? He wrote a piece that I'm trying to find again. I want to say it was Science of Mind magazine, but he wrote a piece entitled, We Are Not Pacifists. Ah, beautiful. Okay. (laughs) And I believe he wrote this during the Second World War, but it could have been during the Korean War because he, he did write a piece that I do have on hand called Spiritual Armament during Korea. And in there, he said, we, we don't believe in war. We don't believe that war is the highest form of interaction by any means among humans. Mm-hmm. But basically, there comes a time when you got to do what you got to do. Right. And uh, uh, so it, it, we teach peace, we preach peace, but we're not, we'll take up arms if we have to. I know I've got people in my center, quite a few who are veterans. Right. Uh, we, we had kids in in Desert Storm and Desert Shield and uh, in the reserves and so forth. And uh, it's it's not uh, it's not what anyone wants. And uh, war is hell. Mm-hmm. And it, as anyone who's been there will will tell you, it's and we look forward. Holmes said we look forward to a time when things like war and poverty and injustice of any kind. He used the expression when they're rolled up like a scroll and numbered with the things that were once thought to be so. Amen. Now, you're the uh, Q&A guy for Science of Mind magazine, so we're going to Q&A you right now. 
Okay. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> and and some, some of the things I thought we'd uh, talk about are I'm directly stealing from some of the questions in Science of Mind magazine because I think they're good. Is that all right? Sure. So going back to, this is, relates to the World War II and, and what you were saying about his, his uh, talk. There's a question that was posed, is patriotism spiritual? And I'm just wondering, you know, what your thoughts are on that and, and what you think Holmes would say? Well, on the philosophical side, everything is spiritual. And I'm not, I'm not dodging the question. Right? <laughs> sure. Right. You know, it, it's all spirit. It's all thought wrapped in feeling equals belief. Uh, so every intention comes from the spiritual place within. As to patriotism, I, I liken it to personal self-esteem. If I have self-esteem that's healthy, then I believe I can do things. I have confidence. Uh, I believe that I matter. But I don't do that at the cost of other people. I don't feel those ways by stepping on other people or minimizing other people. Patriotism, when it's non-competitive, is a fine and beautiful thing. And I choke up sometimes at patriotic displays. And as a matter of fact, the very first day I, I attended a Science of Mind service under my own power, because my family had taken me. I was a kid. They'd taken me before, and it didn't really register. But the first time I walked in and liked what I heard and decided I wanted to be a part of this and filled out a membership card, was on the bicentennial Sunday in 1976. Well, patriotism, again, when it's, you know, I'm proud of the country I live in, except when I'm ashamed of it. Right? Yeah. I'm thrilled, you know, I'm thrilled with this country, except when I'm disgusted by it. And the stuff that disgusts me, the stuff that outrages me, I have to do something with that. I have to vote. I have to be an activist. But I, the stuff that thrills me and pleases me about this country is not because it's better than some other. It's just the land where I was born. And I would hope that people would feel this way about the land where they're born, the culture they're born into, that they would take pride in it. They're all beautiful and they all work. Let me get back to the basics. And I thought we'd ask this in case people don't know the science of mind philosophy, although a lot of the folks that listen do. Um, just a minor question. How does religious science define God? It's just a simple question. It's just a simple question. <laughs> we define God, and I have to hedge on this one too, because when I say we, you know, who am I speaking for? Ernest Holmes or the people in our centers, everybody has their own experience of, of God. Uh, but the, the collective voice, I guess, it's not a consensus, but the collective agreement that we have in science of mind is that God is the intelligence and order permeating all creation. All creation is the manifest expression of God. It is a field of energy, God is. And it is hospitable to its creation. It is built to work. 
not to defeat us. Sometimes it's easier to say what we don't believe about God. In fact, I just gave a talk on this. But so often, if you take up the first 20 minutes of a 30-minute talk saying, well, we don't believe this and that and the other thing. What we don't believe is that there's that God is a being. Rather, we believe that God is beingness. It is the essence of being in all beings, in all forms of itself. There's no gulf between the self and God. There's no distance. There was never a betrayal. There was never a time when humans did something so offensive that God went off in a huff. And, and we have to bridge that gap now. And we have to find redemption in God's eyes. Rather, we believe that we're born perfect, whole, and complete. And if there's any apparent lack of God in our lives, it's our minds that we treat to change that. We work on ourselves to align ourselves with the divine idea, which is simply to express more fully. And as we do that, there's a trickle-down effect in our lives. The ordinary life tends to work better. Communications work better. Relationships work better and so on. When we believe, for example, that the other party that we're dealing with is an expression of God as well. God is present at every point within itself. And one of those points is me. And one of those points is each of you. Uh, God is having an experience of itself in this world at this time by means of us. And I say it and itself because I don't want to give it a gender. It's, it's beyond gender. It includes all gender. It includes all identification and non-identification and everything else. Uh, it's, it's this, it's this, beautiful energy that contains everything. Ernest Holmes, to finish on your question, Ernest Holmes was asked one time, what is the one thing we have to heal? He answered it two ways. He said, the first thing we have to heal is the belief that there's anything we have to heal. <laughs> great. The second, yeah, isn't that great? The second thing he said is we heal the sense of separation from our source. We heal the sense of separation from God, which we may have picked up along the way due to experiences in life. We heal that, and as soon as we open ourselves to the divine idea, it flows into us unrestrictedly, and we have peace. Beautiful. So I know this is a question that who knows how many times you have been asked, but so here we go. So, uh, Reverend Jesse, if we're whole, perfect, and complete, then what does science of mind say about suffering in the world? We're throwing you just minor, we're just throwing minor questions. Yeah. <laughs> you, you have, Jim, you have sort of a gleeful inflection in your voice when you ask these things. Yes. Why, don't, why, don't you me, why don't you give me a ground ball? <laughs> no. <laughs> No, seriously, why is there suffering in the world? Well, philosophically, there's suffering in the world because we have believed in a separation of ourselves from source. There, therefore, we, we suffer and we cause suffering to other beings. Being human is complicated. There's, a, there's an irony to it. 
I think it was Meister Eckhart who said first that we were spiritual beings having a human experience. Having a human experience, we can forget our spiritual dimension. And when we do that, we get scared. And when we get scared, we get angry. And when we get angry, we lash out. Or we get scared and we get depressed. And when we get depressed, we take it out on ourselves and we sort of collapse into ourselves. This is the nature of suffering. Ernest Holmes didn't believe that suffering was imaginary, but he, at the same time, didn't believe that it was fundamentally necessary. We're, we're not here to burn off karma. You know, we're not here to, to, to work in the, in the, on the prison planet of Earth in order to perfect ourselves for some kind of future incarnation. Instead, this can be a glorious place. This can be heaven on Earth. Once we get it figured out who we really are and how, how best to take care of ourselves and each other. All right, here's, a, here's a ground ball. Um, is there or isn't there evil? <laughs> yeah, there is. <laughs> how does science of mind view it? Yeah, there's, there's evil, but there's not a standalone evil power. There are not two powers competing for us on top of us, you know? There's not God and the devil. Mm -hmm. evil, is, evil is a really dark place we can go within when we feel completely alienated from any sort of power, any sort of meaning, and people do evil things. Now, if you go back to one of Holmes's teachers, Emma Curtis Hopkins, he spent, I think, 10 days, seven to 10 days in a sort of intensive learning experience with her toward the end of her earthly life. She maintains that all evil is done in the name of good. Mm -hmm. And I had a real hard time with that. And I think most people probably do uh, in, in her in her book, Scientific Christian Mental Practice. But if you, sit, if you sit with that idea for a while, it starts to make sense that the most evil things that are done are done by people who think that they have to do them in order to get what they feel they need, whether that's security or more power, more voice, something. They're wrong in the human sense. It's it's appalling in the human sense, but they're doing it from a standpoint that's need-based. Mm -hmm. And when we recognize this, it doesn't just change our behavior toward others, but it makes us think very hard about ourselves and the choices that we make and to try to make the next right choice that's not based in fear, that's not based in separation, so that we can take, again, better care of ourselves and others. So evil is real in the short term as tragedy, as horror, but there's not a power supporting it that is equal to the power of good. There is, in fact, no power at all supporting it. It's based in ignorance. It's based in, it's based in a lie, you know, right. that, that there could ever fundamentally be anything wrong with us that separates us from, from spiritual grace. Excellent. So I have a question, just a slight backtrack. Since you sparked my curiosity, 
when you said that, you know, uh, Emma Curtis Hopkins makes this statement and you felt a little, you know, bristling. Is there ever a moment in all that you know of Holmes that you either disagree or find that kind of bristling with him? I don't know that I disagree. And it's not like if I disagreed, there'd be a problem. Right. You wouldn't get into uh, a fight with them or something like that, would, right? No, no. And no I wouldn't not a fist fight or anything. Because Holmes wasn't yeah. a pacifist. Let's remember that. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah, he, was, he wasn't a pacifist, so I, yeah, I wouldn't take a fight with him. Although he and his, he and his, bro, he and his brother were opposed to prize fighting. In mm. Venice Beach, where he, where he lived. In fact, uh, to get, I'm going to throw a question in here you haven't asked, but okay. was he ever was he ever political? Was uh, yeah, uh, they they got prize fighting outlawed in Venice Beach, California, wow. around the time of the First World War because people were people were getting you know seriously injured. Wow. Uh, and uh, but. Uh, you know, no, and I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be thrown out of the organization or, or lose my place at the magazine or something if I did disagree with him. I, I want your, I want your listeners to understand that this is not a, a heavily doctrinaire organization that you got to march and lockstep to homes. All of that said, I don't know that I disagree. What I wish he had done, and and you do this when you come into come into ministry is the people that are your teachers you start finishing their sentences you know what i mean you wish they'd go you wish they'd zig when they zag and i wish he had said i know he was i know for a fact that he believed in equality of all people i Mm. wish he'd said more about that Mm. i I wish i wish he had written directly on that point we had integrated churches at a time when segregation was the norm racial segregation was the norm um but he and and he and he supported that and he went to the churches that were led by african-american ministers and he spoke there and he did everything he could but he didn't have an op-ed piece in the la times and i wish he had right and the same thing with a number of the ministers the first generation of ministers in religious science were gay and lesbian Mm. and and this was not a problem for the organization it was not a problem for their congregations but again i wish that something had been said now granting the fact that he passed in 1960 it was nine years before stonewall it who would have published it what you know what considerations might he have had i don't know but I wish he'd said more about that on the nose about particular populations that have been oppressed and marginalized. Understood. Thank you. Sure. So um, we were taught that every thought creates that, that th- our thoughts create our reality in a, in a sense. Um, do we have to worry that every single thought is creating our reality? I mean, I got some negative ones in there occasionally. <laughs> No, 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 we don't. And if, you know, if we do, we get, we get superstitious and we lose our sense of humor and you got to keep your sense of humor because, because like life is, I mean, like I said, uh, it, it's a, it's a major irony. The fact that we're spiritual beings having a human experience, you got to laugh at that sometimes. No, the thoughts that are creative, it seems to me are the ones that we think repetitively and that we surround with emotion. 
these become guiding principles for us. They become what psychology calls our explanatory style. People tend to have an optimistic or a pessimistic explanatory style, and it shapes and colors incoming information so that it, then their choices are predicated on that information, which they themselves have managed in some way. It's, it's that stuff. It's that repetitive and heartfelt body of stuff that needs attention to be paid to it. What is it I'm repetitively doing? Where do I go? Do I have background anxiety? Do I sit down as almost as a spiritual practice and worry about the future? Do I sit down almost as a spiritual practice and mull over my resentments and my regrets? And if I'm doing that, I'm, I'm creating kind of a toxic loop of thought leading to things. Because those ideas do, they, they cause stuff to come toward us that conforms to them, and they cause us to move in a certain direction that we otherwise might not have moved in, where we cross paths with experiences that conform to those beliefs. So if I resent, if I regret, I get more stuff to re resent and regret. If I don't forgive others, I may eject certain people from my life but the next people that show up seem more like those people just wearing different faces. Well, this is an important question for me. Um, back in the day, I, uh, you know, I thought about Christy Brinkley all the time and she never actually came to me. What, you know, what do I mean to that? <laughs> <laughs> well, she was with, she was with Billy Joel at the time and, and, you know, they were doing fine and, you know, I, I don't know if you fill Madison Square Garden uh, six <laughs> or eight times a year, you know, so. <laughs> I'll let that well, go. Yeah, I know. If you're talking about, you know, basically ambushing other people, um, no, it doesn't, it doesn't work for that. It's the highest and best or the highest good or this and something better. You have in mind, for example, you want to create a relationship with somebody you get in mind the qualities of that person that you'd like to experience and you make yourself ready to experience that by working on yourself. And I mean, this is a trope, but the, the, the idea to, to find the person you want to spend the rest of your life with, you have to become the person you want to spend the rest of your life with. And then what happens is seemingly miraculously, a person will appear that person will appear and they could be on the other side of the world at this moment but they will they will gravitate toward you at a soul level and, and you don't have to uh you don't have to finagle the process you don't have to work the angles you know it's just things just naturally tend to work out and let me just say when, let me just say that yeah. uh, i love my wife very much and i'm glad things can work out with christy <laughs> disclaimer that's good yeah, that's 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 good to hear. Can I ask the, you what the uh, most what the what the best and most challenging parts of being? Can I ask you what what are the best and most challenging parts of being the Q and A guy at uh, Science of My Magazine? We just have a couple minutes. Well, you know, the best part of it is is what we're doing now, you know, getting to have these kinds of conversations. 
when I get questions, I, I don't just fire off first thing comes to mind. I, you know, I sit down, I meditate on it. In some cases, I have to do research because they ask kind of technical things. But the best part of it is, is just to have this conversation going in the world uh, and, and seeing the enthusiasm that, that the people who write in have for their own spiritual practice. They, people really want to know how to get it right in their own lives. And that's, you know, that's exciting. And they also have these kinds of questions like, like you guys put up about world conditions and what can I do and why is it this way? Um, there's really no downside to me. Uh, the, I guess uh, yeah, the only downside is I get 340 words per question per page. <laughs> and, and some of these things take a book. Right. Uh, you know, and, and so the the editorial gets gets kind of dicey from time to time. But um, I want to give a shout out if I made a Holly Sharp, who's my editor there. Uh, we've been working together now for almost ten years. She is terrific, and um, uh, just it, the the process of working with the magazine, how that whole thing unfolds, is is just a joy every month. Wonderful, wonderful. Jesse, it's been a pleasure having you on. Um, please pick, pick up the book, The Essential Ernest Holmes. It's a fantastic work. And uh, read Science of Mind magazine. Uh, Jesse's Q&A column in there is wonderful. Is there a way where people can get more information from you, about you? Yes. Uh, our website is creativelife.org. .org. Uh, we also have a YouTube channel with various of my talks and that is creative life spiritual center on youtube just enter that uh, in the search bar on youtube um those are the those are the best ways uh we have a facebook page creative life uh i think it's creativelife.org facebook backslash creativelife.org you enter creative life spiritual center you'll find it thanks jesse for being on the show it's been great having you for more information about Raymont, go to RaymontAnderson.com. I've got videos and courses at YouThriveHere.com. Thanks, everybody. We'll talk with you next time on Big Universe on Unity Online Radio. Thank you for listening to Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. I'm Victoria Moran. Since we launched the Main Street Vegan podcast back in 2012, lots more people have discovered the way that moving in a vegan direction can infuse our lives with vitality, spirituality, and compassion. My guests are experts on every aspect of making this work in your real life and our real world. Join us for Main Street Vegan here on mindbodyspirit.fm.